Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FPNA leaders and planning experts. So, guys, uh, thanks so much. Um, Friday morning. I've had a great week. I've, I've been uh, down having board meetings and executive meetings down in Scottsdale, uh, ready to get back home and see the kids and the family. But one thing I've been doing a bunch of lately is hiring. And what we want to talk about today is FPNA's got talent. How do you go out and get that talent? And Glenn, I know you have a little reputation of being a, a quirky uh, interviewer and different practices, but ultimately you've said that it leads to great success. So before I throw over to you, I want to start with Chris. And uh, Chris, tell me your top three hiring tips. Okay. Okay. First one, number one out the gate, don't hire for, uh, I think a lot of times people go into a hiring process and they have a uh, uh, unconscious bias about what they hire, right? Most of the time people want to hire people that went to the same school. They 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 act like me. They're extroverted. They're they're kind of this mode. Don't do that, right? Don't hire hire for different skill sets. The second thing is hire for core competencies. Oh my goodness, this was game changer for me when I got into the hiring people aspect of it. You look at somebody's resume, you're like, oh man, they got the public accounting experience. They got the big four. They got the CPA. All these different experiences which are also good things that go into the package, but you got to hire for core competencies, right? Core competencies in accounting finance, attention to details, uh, uh, able to uh, help others, uh, collaborative, a great communicator, uh, works well under pressure. Like have your interviews and have your people and have your team with different compositions of core competencies, right? My team right now, we all have different core competencies that we need, right? And the third thing is you have to have a vision for your team, not just in what the team you want now, but what you want your team, to, the value proposition you want to bring to the business, where your skill gaps are, where your baselines are from a skills perspective, and how do you bridge your team to get to those new levels. So for me, it's always been a and it's never it's never a science to hiring. Right. Like I've made plenty of mistakes where I've you know, hey, this person is super talented. They got all the skills. They check all the boxes but it wasn't a culture fit or uh, they had different aspirations or, you know, they, they gave these great examples during an interview, but when it came down to rubber meeting the road of doing the work, they couldn't execute on it. So I think for me, those are the really top big things that were like game changing for me when it came from like hiring people and thinking about a dream team that you want to build, right? Cause every leader, every CFO that you want to think about, right? You want to build that, that, that dream team, right? But that dream team wasn't all Michael Jordan's, right? If you look at the greatest team ever assembled in basketball, which was the 1992 Olympic team, which is the dream, original dream team, it wasn't all Michael Jordan's. Everybody played their specific role. So I think that's another piece for people to think about is you don't want, always want a team of all Michael Jordan's, right? You want a team of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Luke Longley, Tony Kukoc. You want those kind of pieces. And the reason why a lot of those teams are so successful is because everybody knows their role. They bring these core competencies with it. You, you've really taken out the unconscious bias of having a team of all people that are like you. Um, and then you made that team and you really focused on like building it, growing it and learning it and providing value to the business. So for me, 
I think those are my quick pointers around uh, talent and uh, making you sure you're getting out your, your dream team. Yeah, that, that Bulls team that you described, I think they were great because they had an Australian in it. Uh, that's the that's the only reason they were great was Luke Longley was Australian. Uh, but um, Glenn, let's talk to you. So you've said that you're a uh, people describe you as a really awkward slash tough interviewer. Yet you've described to me that uh, that you end up seeing a lot of the people. Well, all of the people that you've hired get promoted. So how do you do that? Not only um, let's actually just focus on the hiring part, right? How, how do you do that? Well, I actually, so Chris was absolutely correct. I'm just going to take what Chris said one step further. It is about the core competencies, but I look for those core competencies that cannot be taught. Creativity, be someone being a fast learner, a strong communicator, having integrity, Understanding how to how do you, how well do you pick up technology? Uh, you know, being responsible in in you know, being when you say you're going to do something that you actually see it through. You can't teach those things. You, it's either inherent in who you are or it's not. A lot of times, what happens is when you're going out and you're interviewing somebody, the the each the, each conversation, each interview becomes unique. You're talking to the person about their experiences, their resume, their background. So how do you go over and compare across all these people? Because every single conversation is different. So what I try and do is I like to start off with a screening call just to say, all right, do you have the right skill set? Can you, you know, can you do the job? Ask a couple questions about their background. When I actually bring them in for an interview, I don't talk about anything on the resume. I don't, oh. I, you know, I don't talk to them about their school their work experience or anything. I've already done that my screening call. I say, all right, fine, you, you, you're physically qualified, but now let me see if you can actually do what I need to be, what needs to be done. So I go over and I'm asking questions that number one, there's absolutely no way anyone could prepare for because I wanna see how they react. I, want, I don't wanna hear about stories that they've done certain things. I wanna know who they are. So I focus on those core skills that I can't teach. I could teach somebody how to put a budget together. I could teach someone how to build a great Excel model. I could teach someone how to be a good business partner. I can't teach them to be a fast learner. So that's really what I'm going after. I'm looking for those core competencies that you don't, that, that you have to show up with. And if you can find those, now you know that you're going to have a star in the making. And it's up to you as a manager to be able to manage them and teach them to be able to take off and really see their potential. But if you go over and I've, I've known people and I have some really fantastic former colleagues of mine who would go out and hire somebody and say, this person has done the job before. They've do, been doing this for 15 years and they're really good at what they're doing. It's like, OK, fine. They're competent in what you're hiring them to do today. But how do they take that role and expand it? You have mm -hmm. to have those certain core competencies that, that show that you have drive, you have intelligence, you could communicate well, you could pick things up, you could be creative. You can't teach that. There is no yeah. class in school that teaches you how to be creative. But one of the things that most people in finance forget is that creativity is one of the, the most important skills that we have. Yes, you have to be detail-oriented. Yes, you have to make sure all your numbers tie out. But if you can't be creative to come up with the idea or the approach that no one else has thought of, you are really not going to make a very big difference. 
So there's I, what I really try and focus on is those things that cannot be taught. And that's when I'm going through the interview process, I am testing for those throughout the entire discussion. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, Glenn. That's something that I do uh, is um, uh, ask questions. I don't, I rarely look at people's resumes actually. Um, uh, so uh, I don't even know what school half the team, uh, well, I probably don't know any of the schools that my team went to. I, I have no idea if they've got college degrees. Um, I'm sure they do, but I have no idea. The one thing that I would say that you you described and I think Chris described uh, that I think is the most important thing in hiring is writing down before you start your candidate interview, before you even write down the like even go and get approval for the headcount is what are behaviors that you are looking for from this role now and in the midterm and in the long term. And then have that objective criteria that says, well, this person is going to need to do a lot of work on their own and be detail oriented and then set up the job description so that you find those folks and then test for that. It's, it's called it's an interview capability called behavioral targeting. And, and it's built on the premise that your past behavior is the best um, predictor of future behavior. Not many people can change their spots. Um, it's very difficult to, and it takes a long time. We've talked about this in terms of how do you learn to become a leader? How do you learn? Like you can learn, of course you can. Um, but enjoying spending six hours in a spreadsheet is not something everyone wants to do. Right. But if that's the job that you're, you have to have and the skill set you need in this role, yes, it may be a core competency, but you want to know that that person enjoys doing it. They get from, from it. They get the sense of accomplishment when they build that complex model and it all ties out and everyone's happy. That's what you want them to feel every day at work because then they're fulfilling their purpose. And if you never write any of that down, you can't test for it. Yeah. And that is the biggest thing. And also telling the other people in the interview process what you're looking for. It helps you define the behaviors, and then therefore you end up with the ideal candidate in that role. And those behaviors may be 100% different for hires within two months, you're looking for completely different behaviors. And that's how you end up with an inclusive and diverse team as well, because you're not actually testing for any of those things that, um, you know, show up or get screened out in, in hiring processes. For so, sure. I'm going to disagree with you on one thing. I mean, I think most of what you said, 100% agree with, but I actually don't like to have the other people who are going to be interviewing. I don't want to tell them what to look for because I want, when I go through an interview process, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm bringing someone onto my team, I want members of my, my existing team to interview them. I want business partners to interview them. I want some, uh, you know, support staff, meaning like if you're getting data from HR and you're going to be interacting a lot with HR, you want somebody, you know, from, from HR maybe to, to do that interview. Uh, so I usually look for a pretty well diversified group of people. And I very specifically don't tell them what I'm looking for because right. I'm and say, I want you guys to come and say, yeah, this is someone I like who I want to work with because that to me, when I bring them, if, if I bring a business partner into the room to do an interview, 
I want to know, are they going to have confidence in that person? Are they going to enjoy working with that person? So I don't want to, to, to taint that in any way. And then what I do, which is also, I think, a little bit unique, it's rather than asking each person who does an interview to come back and tell me what they think, I set up a meeting, bring everybody in a room together, and everybody hears everyone else's feedback on the candidate. Because if you have, let's say you have four people who did the interview, who did interviews, and one person says, hey, you know what? I got a really weird, weird, weird read from the person when I asked this kind of question. And somebody else says, I got the same feeling on that. Now mm-hmm. you know you got two different people, completely independent, coming up with with an impression, and most likely that's a pretty good impression. Or if you get other people say, oh, you know what? I got something completely different. I didn't feel that at all. Now you know, all right, maybe I don't weight that impression as much. So by having everybody hear each other's feedback, you actually get a much better sense of who the candidate is and what the right feedback is you should be making the decision on. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, uh, I you know, I'm going to have to agree to disagree on that one because I, I like I think with um, my personal uh, feeling is that um, if you have people that are hiring people that they like then you end up with oh you like skiing at uh, you know Bear Lake or whatever oh I like skiing there too it's great and then they send, spend the next 30 minutes in the interview talking about how they both like skiing and you're not actually getting a really good assessment of the individual. So I, I am very, very um, focused when we're hiring on making sure that the team have the objective criteria and the list of behaviours that we're looking for, because otherwise you get into that, um, you actually exclude any diversity and inclusivity uh, from the hiring process. So Definitely. fair point, and I'm not talking about personal, you know, connections. I sure. do go through the job description. And I said, look, yeah. this is what we're looking for. But I'm not, you're right. It, it's not a, I, I don't want them having a personal conversation. I want them talking about what the role is. Okay. But I yeah. go and say, go test for whether or not they can do this kind of model. I don't <laughs> have those, those specific that, things. That, that, that's fair. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's fair. So, Chris, um, let's talk about when you're bringing. So let's say, you know, we, we've all got our, our hiring, uh, ideal hiring methods, right? And, and uh I think we're actually pretty aligned. We're just using di- different words to describe it. And, and I actually love hearing counterpoints because that means I can hire more amazing people. Tell me how you bring someone into the team both before they start, like, cause I think this is a big miss on most hiring managers is, is how do you set someone up for some set for success? And then their first two weeks, what, what are the things that you do to set someone up for success? Because just like any software implementation, the go live is the most important part and the <laughs> most successful part of any adoption in future. Yeah, it's the most stressful part of it too as well. Like you get that buyer's remorse and everything going on. But for me, right before, like um, I'm not a person that has to have like six different interviews. Like I think some organizations, right, they they take candidates through like six different rounds of interviewing, right? And I'm and I sit there, I'm like, if you don't know after six rounds of interviewing that you want to hire this person, you know, the job market is is such in high demand for high performance and talented people that you're going to lose people if you're doing long, long strength. So for me, it's it's honestly, Rowan, for me, it's all about honesty. Like I look candidates straight in the face and I'm like, here's what you're going to do. Here's what I expect out of you. Here's what I measure success. 
And here's some of the things that you're going to come into that uh, are not probably fully developed that I'm going to expect you to. I set clear, like I'm, I'm like really, really transparent with them about it, like 100%. And the reason why I do that is I want them to come in and know like that's like that's already about building the trust with them already, right? If you can have an honest conversation, it's okay. I remember the first hire I had in Amarsis, right? And I said, look, like, you know, you're going to be the accounting lead. You're going to you're going to work through this transition of bringing our external accounting party in. Right. You're going to work through this business uh, relationship. We don't have all the processes fully documented. So I'm going to expect you to do this. And I clearly set the expectations right out the gate in the interview process. Right. I, with with all candidates, not just the person that you get your top three, or your top four. When it came down me talking with them, it was a real conversation. And I asked them, like, how do you feel about that? How does that align to what your career aspects? How would you feel that was your role for the next 18 months? And some people would be like, and you could just tell, like, and you can, you know, you this is where as an interviewer, you pick up on body language. Like if they sit back or if they're just like apprehensive or they close down, probably not something that they want to go with, right? So for me, it was always about being honest and transparent. Because when you build that honesty and transparency with that candidate that you offer to, when they come into the role, there's no surprise, right? It's not like you pull the rug out of with them and you're like, oh yeah, he told me <laughs> he told me about this, right? And this is what I'm actually doing. Now when you get them into the role, I am a strong proponent about the whole first week of the the whole first two weeks of the business for anybody that joins my team, there I'm I'm setting conversations up with, with sales, marketing, client success, leaders, uh, the global teams that they're support. All they're gonna be doing is in conversations, right? They're going to be in with me to see the conversations I'm a part of. We're going to have a team event. It is all about like less about, hey, here's our here's our, you know, system and here's how we're going to teach you how to, you know, do allocations in Oracle. No, 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 no. It's about the people. It's about the people. And it's meetings and say, like, you're going to have a 30 minute conversation with this person, 45 minutes with this and 30 minutes with this person, 45 minutes with this person. And just getting them to understand, here's the lay of the land and the stakeholders you have to meet, right? And then in that first 30 days, there's a real, like, first week is going to be this. And there's really key milestones. I have a lot of touch points with them in that first week. At the end, I sit down with them on Friday. We talk through, we go through, like, how did the week go? How do you feel about things? About your accesses? Um, how are you feeling about the connections and, and the people that you met? And then I set the directional. Here's what the next here's what the next two weeks are going to look like. Right. And you bridge into that to ultimately get into like, you know, that 30, 60, 90 day cadence where you're following up and checking up with them, which I think is so important. Like the last thing you want to do for that high performance or anybody on your team is just give them their laptop and say, OK, here's your laptop. I set up a couple of meetings for you um, and figure it out. That was my onboarding experience. Like if I'm being honest and transparent. When I started at the Marsis, I was given a laptop and said, okay, Chris, there was, there, I mean, I, I met the, I met like the people, but there was no formal, like it was, I got my laptop day one. I logged into my benefits. I did all that. And they were like, Hey Chris, you got to figure this stuff out. And it just was like, okay, like, all right, fine. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just make it up. And just like, <laughs> go through what, I'll just go through what I want. But I realized through that experience of me going through it, that, I don't want anybody else joining my team to have that same experience. So here's the structure that I set up. 
here's what we're gonna do. Here's the here's the toll gates that we meet. Because that first 30, 60, 90 days of a new hire is vital. And it's vital for building the trust. Not vital if no one is competent to do the job, right? Like it's it's all about do I trust this person in my team? Does a business because they have to go through and build the business partnerships, right? They have to go through and the core competencies. I have a different core competency set for my staff account, Lauren, than I and I have a different core competency for our uh, recently promoted controller, Cherise. And I go through and just always checking in, right? And one thing as a leader, this is my last point that you need to that you need to be laser focused on thinking about and figuring out in the first ninety days of any new hire is what is their passion thesis statement the passion th everybody has a passion thesis statement you have it rowan glenn you have it the passion th thesis statement is what motivates you what gets you going like what gets you fired up what what is the what is that right and i know for lauren our staff account her passion thesis statement she loves to feel needed and she loves to be in collaboration with other departments inside the organization that is her passion thesis statement so the more things I can give her around that, the more motivation I can do in projects and things I can align to that, the more motivated, connected, and just entrenched in the business she's going to be. So as a leader, first 90 days, have a formal 30, 60, 90-day plan, be honest and transparent, and by 90 days as a leader, you should know your team, your individual teammates' passion thesis statement by heart. You should be able to recite it, and you should be able to follow up with them and make sure you're grooming and planting that seed around that thesis statement. That, that, that's usually how I approach it. That's amazing. I, I love the idea of, uh, you know, writing down and knowing everyone's individual passion thesis statement. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's something really powerful. It's what we do as, as companies, right? We always write down our vision and our mission, and, and that's the company North Star. It's, it's a great idea to have that at the individual level. Glenn, what do you do to set up candidates for success you know, uh, from the not only the hiring process, which you described, but then that kind of pre onboarding and then through that journey. Well, Chris really nailed it. I mean, the onboarding process, first of all, you have to have an onboarding process. And I have been in the exact same spot that Chris described at many companies where, hey, here's your laptop. OK, go to work. Uh, can you at least point me to where the bathrooms are? Right. I mean, you have no idea what you know what's going on you just walk in there and and they say okay day one start working um you need to have some kind of you know ramp up to that so i always try and make sure when i'm hiring somebody i off the very first thing i do is i block two hours of my calendar at the very you know on their day to just orient them to give them a tour walk them around the office introduce them to some people talk to them about here's the org structure Here's the, the key business partners that you're going to have. And I go out and I schedule meetings with them out this way. When they first start on day one, they already have for their next two weeks, they probably have about 10, 15 different meetings on their calendars already. I talk them through it. Who's going to be there? I actually go with them to go and do those introductions rather than leave them out on their own. And so it's a lot of hand-holding at the beginning. Chris also nailed it when he said, you got to go over and have set the right expectations. you got to make sure that people, when they come in, they not only are excited about what they're doing, but they know the direction that they're moving in. One Sex. of the I always like to ask in the interview is, what are your personal, or I should say professional goals over the next five years? Are you going to be moving in a direction? Do you want to get to a point that is going that this role is going to help you get there? 
because if they come out and they say, oh, you know what, in five years from now, I really want to be, uh, you know, doing doing sales. You're like, well, why are you applying for finance, right? I mean, you got to have that. The, the people have to be aligned with where they want to go. It's where you want them to go as well. And then you can work together to help them get there. So one of the other things that I do, and I usually do this within the first two weeks of uh, of onboarding, is I, you know, I have a regular one-on-one with, with each of my, my direct reports. And I ask them <coughs> very, very, very difficult question. And I said, think about where you are today. Where do you want to be in 20 years? Think about what that looks like. And imagine a graph, right? If you could just go over your picture, you got your x-axis, your y-axis. Your x-axis is time. You're here at point zero all the way out to 20 years. Your y-axis is what I call stuff. I know, real technical term there. But I I use the term (laughs) stuff could be anything. It could be I want to be living in this type of house. I want to be married. I want to have kids. I want to go back and get my MBA. I want to be flying a plane. I don't care. Whatever the heck it is, where do you want to be in 20 years? And then you go over and say, okay, if that's where you want to be in 20 years, where do you need to be in 15 in order to achieve 20? Where you need to be in 10 to get to 15, where you need to be in five to get to 10, where you need to be in two to get to five. And so what should we be doing to help you get to where you want to be in two years? And now that is not something I ask. I I expect people to answer on the fly in the meeting. I tell them, go over, think about this, put something together during our next one-on-one, come back and I want to hear from you. Because it is so important as a manager that it's not just about achieving the goals that the company set out for you to achieve, but each one of your staff have their own personal goals and helping them get to where they want to be is going to be greater motivation. You're going to have them working harder. And when they are motivated and they're working harder, you're going to get a much greater production and and product out of them. So make sure that you are helping your staff get to where they want to be. And the only way you, you learn about that is by talking to them. What is it that motivates you? Where do you want to go? And then you work on that together. I'm sure that that uh, I'm sure that exercise, Glenn, uh, this, the stuff and time exercise is what I will now for future call that, um, is probably creates a, a moment where a lot of people have never really thought about that. And, and so it becomes really enlightening for them and for you how people think, how they operate, and, and also allows you to uh, become a much better mentor slash coach slash boss to them. Yeah, a- absolutely. I'll give you an example. My last company, uh, I inherited a-, a woman who was already part of the team and, and I had the conversation with her and she said, you know, I would just really love to work in Asia. That's one of my dreams I've always had. So I said, okay, you know what? We have a, you know, we have a part of the company that is based in Singapore, in Australia, in Hong Kong, in Japan. So I said, let's think about projects and stuff as we move forward, about how we could maybe integrate you a little bit more with those to get you some of that experience. And maybe then you could build some contacts and down the road, maybe there's an opportunity for you. Because one of the things that, you know, I mean, we have all been employees as well as managers. And one of the things that makes you as an employee feel like, hey, I'm in a good spot, I like what I'm doing, is to have that manager who you know is also looking out for you and helping you build and grow your career. So you've got to lay that foundation. If you just come in and say, hey, look, you know what, I need you to produce these reports and I need you to do this analysis, and that's it, they're going to be like, okay, fine, but is the, the, you know, at some point in their head, the thought's going to be, is this what I'm going to be doing for the next two years? 
you know, you want to go and say, hey, look, I have other aspirations. I want to share that with you, manager, and I want you, manager, to help me get there. And then you as a manager should say, hey, employee, I want to know what those aspirations are. I want to help you achieve your goals because you're helping me achieve mine. And that partnership, just like we've talked about in the past, where you have that mutual, that two-way street with, with a business partner about what they want to get in meeting, not just what FP&A or finance wants to have, it's the same thing with a manager and an employee. It is a two-way street. And the more that you are a partner with, with your employee, the more productive and effective your, partner, your, your employee is going to be. hundred yeah, percent. One of the things that I use, and I think um, uh, you both touched on it a little bit, but I'll, I'll probably be a little more explicit with it. A technique that I use with new hires is to give them a project, either cross-functionally uh, across the business or cross-functionally in my world in the marketing silos that can exist, that enables they have to lead, own, and manage this initiative from day one. Right. And, and what it does is you described, Glenn, where you take people on a tour of the company effectively, but it gets them to do that through a project, through initiative where they, uh, they initially, you, you have to set them up for success. Number one, they can't fail this project and you have to make sure that that never happens. Um, but you do that because then they have a quick win as soon as they join the company They've met a bunch of people through leading. Uh, the team gets to learn about them. You get to learn how they lead and you can figure out whether you want to give them more projects or less projects. And it's a really great accelerant uh, to someone's kind of, you know, um, uh, evolution inside the company. I, I think the other thing that I find really important is to, to recognize that any new employee coming into your team, your business, is going to change the dynamic of that team, no matter how it is. Sure. Some, sure. some will change it in a massive way. Some will change it in a small way. And it depends on the size of your team and the, the, uh, the level of the role. I've got two new VPs coming into my team soon, and they are going to have a massive change on, on my organization. And to set them up, I have to, A, coach them on you know, how to create the change and I also have to advise the team to say, be ready for this change coming because the, the people that can't accept change are the people that aren't prepared for it. So they have to know about it. Um, and that's a, a really, those two things I find just majorly help uh, the team adopt someone into the team because that's what they're doing. And also someone come from within, like they, they're able to, to um, express themselves from within the team rather than talking about their old company. Yeah. Like, like you said, like we've been talking about building that connection. Right. And like, we talk about it a lot and what we do as, as FPNA and, and, and accounting and finance leaders about connection. It's as equally as important to the people. And that first 90 day period is so vital for people to feel not only connected to their role, but connected to the vision of what their role is going to impact inside of the team that they're a part of. Right. Um, and, and, and that, right. And, and understanding, like, I think a lot of times too, like some people, they come into a role and I made this mistake, right? Like I came into the role and you talked about like, people are going to have massive amounts of change on the culture. Right. But too much of that too early be kind of like, you could like, People can be scared of yeah. you. Like when I first started at Amarsis, right? You, Ron, you talked about it with your VPs. These are the what could go wrongs in talent, right? 
Like you come in, you're that super talented FPNA person. You're you've seen it done and done all this stuff, and you come in, you're like, all right, I know this, I know that. Uh, when I first started at Marsis, I came in, I knew this was my third SaaS business, so I knew SaaS, I knew the metrics. I came in like I had all this experience, and I came in way too hot. Not only just one of my personalities, but when I got on calls and was around my European uh, counterparts in in Vienna, and I was around them. Everybody was like, Chris, we we can't process you right now. Like you're you you know everything. You're very smart. Like you're very outgoing. You challenge everybody around you. Like I for the first like you know, 90 days of my onboarding, everybody was scared scared as hell of me. Because they were like, Who who is this dude? Like, and everybody was scared to ask questions. And I, I remember sitting down with our CFO. He says, Chris, look. Everybody knows you're smart. Everybody knows you get it, right? Everybody knows, and I, I brought you in to, to come in and take our global team up a couple levels, but you're doing it way too fast. You're losing people. And I had to, it was a humbling experience for me. And I was like, Adam, are you telling me I'm, I'm too good at what I'm doing? I'm too, the people, like, the pe- people can't have too much Chris. Yeah, I'm just just like, yeah. So it was humbling to me as a person that I had to think about. And I was like, you know what? This was monumental for me. I had to sit back in the room knowing I know the answer, knowing I know, you know, I had to let a 50 minute meeting go on when I know we could have figured it out at 15 and ready to go with it. I had to I had to adjust. I had to slow down the Lamborghini on the Autobahn and say, okay, the Lamborghini can't go on the Autobahn anymore. It has to go in the school zone. But being in this and this is equally as important for the people you hire. Too many times people come in hot and they completely change a team dynamic and culture. It can have a negative connotation in terms of what that culture and team is about. It's always a balance. But in that first 90 days run that you talked about, having people connected to their role, having people connected to other parts of the business, having them connected to know I'm Chris Ortega. I have this role in this team. This role is going to help drive this inside of our team. I help the overall business, that connection, that's the foundation of a house that you're building with that person. That's the concrete slab or the 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 basement that you're building out that eventually you want to build out different stories on top of the house. But building the house too fast uh, and, and not you lack quality, right? Versus the speed of it. And it, it's a de- it's a delicate balance. And it's it's an art form, guys. It's no science around this stuff. Like we're talking yeah. about people. It's it's all it's all a it's all an art form around it. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of science. It's called psychology. Um, the the <laughs> the, um, the fun part about that, and the really interesting part about that, I, I have two statements. Oh, one statement, one question for you, Chris. So the first statement is, change can only come from within, and that is both at a personal level and at a team level. So what you described about going too fast too soon was you were trying to create too much change when they, the team hadn't yet felt that you were on their team yet. And, and until you become part of the team is only when you can then create the change that you're looking for. So change has to come, come, come from within. And my, my second question is, do you think that, was that the first time that you'd worked with a European team and it's a cultural dynamic? No, that wasn't my first time working with a European team. At a company before, and when I was uh, the lead FP&A person for our central labs, uh, we had operations in uh, Geneva and Germany. 
And uh, okay. so it wasn't my first time in doing that. But in that role uh, prior, like I was new, I was getting into FPNA. So I was more of like, okay, I'm, I'm grooming myself. And I, a lot of, they were way more experienced in that space than I was. So I was look, I was like a sponge. In this example, right, um, I came in was like, I remember in, I started in October and I was in Vienna with the European team in December. So it was like really within that first 90 days. And we were working through an Oracle implementation. So we were moving over from oh, I'm sorry. our ERP system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't even, I don't even, I don't even yeah, yeah. We were, and we were working, working on that together. And I came in and I had experience with, with Oracle before and all of the ERP systems. And I just came in, I was like, we were in user acceptance testing. And I was like, what do we think about this? This is, and I could just tell like everybody in that conversation was just like, it, I can just, I can feel it. And I could personally feel it. And I, looking back on it, I was like, I was like, okay, maybe I need to slow down. And I'm like, I'm, I'm doing too much. And you're exactly right. I, I wasn't part of like Chris's team, us, and or as Chris's team about himself. Honestly, like I'm being for mm-hmm. real. Like I had to come to terms with that. It'd be like, sometimes my motor's too fast that I can alienate other people and I can alienate myself, even though that's not my intentions. But that could be to some, and, and you know, even now today, they don't understand. They're like, "How is Chris even like like Chris? How like nobody in Europe is like is is even that motor like that?" So for me, it was it was a humbling self reflection I had to do as a person, as a leader, and I I take that I took that learning from my teams to say, "Guys, look, this is the progress you're gonna have, right?" These are the things we got to do where it's going to be a, 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 a slow process, but we got milestones and checking points that we'll check in along the way. Right. Um, and that, that's that, that, about it. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. And, and for the folks listening on the line and, and those listening uh, on the recording of this, uh, we have dealt with this, this learning from prior failures topic on a previous episode. So I'd encourage you to go and listen to that. And, and that seems like one of those really powerful learnings that you've had as a leader, Chris, now uh, take on. So Glenn, uh, we, we've talked a lot today um, about the, the hiring process and then the setting up a, 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 an employee for success. Um, I know one topic we should cover is retaining and managing top talent, right? That, but I don't think we should cover that with, uh, we've got only about five minutes left here. But what are your, what are your three top tips for um, for talent identification, uh, whether you're coming into a business and there's already talent there and you've got to identify, you know, who's good at what and why, um, but also in that hiring and, and, and kind of onboarding process. You know, that's a great question. And every individual is different, right? And, and how do you go over and evaluate a whole bunch of different people in a similar way? That's kind of the, the, the question. And there is no right or wrong answer, but usually what I look for is how well do they build out trust and how well do the, their business partners and their teammates trust them? Do they go, you know, are they recognized as a subject matter expert? Do people feel comfortable going to, to that person? So that's one thing when, I, when I'm evaluating people, especially if I'm inheriting a team or even, you know, if as I'm just being retrospective on a team, I look at how much trust have they built out. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is accountability. Are they, do, do they deliver on what they say they're gonna do? Do they over promise? 
and under deliver? Do they under promise and over deliver all the time? How do they go about doing that? Because that also built out trust, but it really gets down to how much you could depend on them. Because you want somebody who you know is in crunch time and you pick up the phone or you walk over to somebody's desk and you say, okay, I need you to be here with me and I need to make sure this is going to get done, that you have the full confidence in the person to do that. The final thing that I really look at is just the core skill set. What are they coming to the table with? You know, and sometimes you get more of a junior person. You're going to be looking at more technical skills. How good can they build a model? You know, and, and a lot of times I've hired people where I've always, especially early in my career, I was recognized as one of those guys who was like, oh, Glenn's an Excel expert. In fact, I even when I had, after I left Franklin Templeton, which was one of my earlier companies, five, six years later, I had people from Franklin calling me up, asking me Excel questions. I'm like, really, guys, what are you doing? <laughs> but I have hired people over the last five, six years that blow me away and they show me stuff. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're doing there, but that's absolutely amazing. Right. So do they have that core foundation? You know, Chris talked about that foundation like a house. I use that example all the time. You have to have that solid foundation so that you could build on top of that. Right. And so those are the things that I'm really looking for when I'm evaluating a team. So it's, you know, how well do you work with other people? How well do you build out trust? Are you dependable? And do you have that core skill set that says, hey, look, you are going to be asked to come in for a certain situation on something because you are the best at doing this, whatever this happens to be. That's really what I'm looking for when I evaluate my teams. Yeah, I, I, I love the, the, the combination of uh, trust, both earned building and, and, um, and accountability. I think they're two things that uh, any team, you know, you have to, you know, we always, we make this joke internally, you know, can I count on you? That is the, the true statement of accountability, right? <laughs> can I count on you? Uh, and, uh, and, and without those two things, then it's going to be hard to rise to the top as a, as a leader, as an individual. One uh, one term that I, I've used for that, and uh, my my uh, exec coach actually uh, has written a book on it called self leadership. Um, and and you can't lead others unless you can lead yourself. And yeah. and so um, until until people have that ability to to be self leaders and self managers, that you can't really start giving them uh, other people to lead because they they can't be trusted with themselves yet. <laughs> Right. I mean, one of the other things to keep in mind, and the larger the team you have, the more people come up to you and say, hey, I want to get to that next level. And, you know, when you're good and you're, you're coaching your own team, you also have to be thinking, about, hey, this is somebody who I could count on because, you know, you know, there are people that you go to that you trust as a leader. And those are the people who you want to go and give more opportunities to. And so what you really want to do, and, and Chris mentioned this at the very which is, you know, you have to go and give people the opportunity, but you have to be upfront with them and honest about, hey, these are the expectations. And the expectation should always be that you're going to be someone that we as, as you know, an FP&A team or whatever that we are going to depend on. We're going to work together. You're going to be a good teammate. You're going to be both a leader and a follower at the same time. And that you can go that you're going to be someone who can step into any of those roles. The expectations that I always have for everybody on my team and the people who are going to be able to rise up from that 
are the people who could fill those different roles and show with confidence that they could do it on a consistent basis. Yeah. Hey, Rowan, if I can just add, I remember thinking about, uh, I wrote an article back in 2015. So for all the listeners, go back and look at my profile. You'll see, and it's called Retaining and Building the Dream, uh, Dream Team, right? And to me, I think these five things are still relevant, right? The first thing is, you know, top players and high performers want to execute and drive results. Like they, they want a seat at the table. They want to be involved. Uh, you know, they want to be a part of the strategies and conversations. The second one about them is Glenn talked about this earlier, right? Give them what I call in this article, co covert business missions, right? Get your little secret agent, your top talent person <laughs> and be like, hey, like I got this little covert mission. I want you to go like black, black ops, right? Get them on a helicopter. I'm making this up, right? So hopefully you guys get there now. They're not literally telling you put your high performers on cop, uh, helicopters and drop them in. But get them in a little curve missions that little missions that you have them with like, hey, I want you to go like tap into this and come back with something. Right. The third thing, which I think is critical. Listen, guys, please can take a second on this one. Make sure your team has access to the top of the line tools and equipment. Please, guys, like don't have your people like, you know, like have them working in awesome tools like Planful and and you know, their GL solutions and other things they have. You want your team to have access to the top tools and top equipment that they have, right? You don't give you don't give Michael Jordan, uh, who's going to go out there and drop 60 points in a game, you don't give him, like, you know, regular water and Kool-Aid and some flip-flops to go out there and do that. Michael Jordan's got Gatorade. He's got his Air Jordan sneakers. He's got his – he's going out there. He's got everything he needs. The fourth one is let them have an active role in the coaches' meetings, right? Let them have a voice to say, hey, you know, we're looking at this uh, this uh, unfavorable difference that we're having. Have them as a seat at the table, not, make, not necessarily making all the decisions. And that's your role in doing it. But having them part of that conversation. I do this with my all the time. I'm like, hey, Sharice, I'm, I got a gap here. Right. I need I need your expertise and your knowledge on something around this. Right. I need to troubleshoot with you. Too many times leaders think we always need to have the answers. A lot of times I may have the answers, but I want to bring Sharice in and say, hey, Sharice, I'm thinking about this. What what are my gaps around? It? Am I missing anything? Is there any uh, impact that this can have to us in our forecast? Have them in those conversations. And this is the last one. Most importantly, create a fun, open to challenging and encouraging learning environment. Like create a team where it's OK to learn. It's OK to develop new skill sets. It's okay to, to challenge the status quo. You want to have a team and environment that's fully open to that. And for me, um, you know, I think those are my top five of retaining and building uh, a, a, a talented dream team. And Chris, that's, let me ask you one thing. Uh, it's okay to laugh and have fun while you work. That is, <laughs> that is just yeah, a, so many people are just so focused on, no, we got to do the job. Guide. You know what? Have fun, enjoy it. That's the whole thing. The, the more you're having fun, the better work you're gonna do. Thanks. Gif giffies, giffies. Um, so guys, uh, this has been awesome. I, I know I have to run. Uh, this was FPNA Fridays on Clubhouse every Friday at, uh, at 10 a.m. Glenn Snyder from Global Growth, Chris Ortega from Amasis. I'm Rowan Tonkin. Thanks everyone, have a great day and uh, look forward to chatting to you next week. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.